And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Let you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ebby. Up to this point, the story of 1 Samuel has been not surprisingly about a little boy named Samuel. But for this week and the next couple weeks, the, the aim of the story is going to shift away from Samuel, and we are going to look at the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you need to understand, because at, at first it might sound like, what, what, why this big shift? Think of this shift like you're watching a movie, and the movie might start with a main character, you learn a little about him or her, and then all of a sudden you shift to a different person that seems rather unconnected in the moment. But as the plot line of the movie moves forward, you see how these two lives do, in fact, intersect. And so that is what is happening here today. This is a different subset of this bigger story of God bringing about renewal in the nation of Israel through a king. So this is not a different story, but we are going to shift away from Samuel for a few weeks. The Philistines, as you see here, are a great threat to Israel. They are a neighboring nation. They are very strong. Uh, a, a, a few months from now, probably, but we're going to learn about King David that goes out to fight Goliath the giant. He's a Philistine. So that gives you a sense for the, the kind of people that the Philistines are. That they're, they're strong, they're big, they have military might. And what we learn here is that these Philistines are a great nuisance 
to Israel, and they are going to go out to battle. And as you see in verse 2, Israel goes out to battle, and it is completely one-sided, and the team is wiped out. Reminds me a little bit like a football game yesterday night. The game was over by the coin flip. So my alma mater, Michigan State, come out, flip the coin, shake a hand, get beat up, go back to the dorm room. You know, good, good game. That's the Philistines here. Michigan State, maybe this is condescending. The Philistines, I guess, would be U of M. Uh, but the good guys, Michigan State, they just got railed on. They don't even have a chance, not even a game. This battle is over before the Philistines even break a sweat. In verse 3, the people are very confused. The elders are asking, well, how could this have happened? We're the chosen people. We, we, we thought we were getting a promised land. And here they are, bloodied, beaten up, wondering why they are on the losing team. So the elders, they come up with an idea. They know they, they need to go to battle again. And so they come up with a new plan. This second time, when they go to battle against the Philistines, they are going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. Surely, that is going to be enough to secure a victory. Just in a very high-level, superficial reading of this text, you might think, well, that seems like a pretty good idea. The Ark is one of the most precious religious elements, artifacts in the spiritual life of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is this this gold box. It's very elaborate. Inside this gold box, there is manna from the days of Israel walking through the wilderness. There is Aaron's budded staff. There's also the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And so very precious items are in this gold box. On top of the box was the mercy seat surrounded by gold statues of cherubim. This box was so sacred that the priests, the Levites, were the only ones that were allowed to carry it. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is, is not God. You, you can't shrink God down into a gold box. But this, this Ark represents God, and, and the items inside this box represent God's power, God's law, God's provision and presence. All of this is very important in the worshiping life of Israel. This ark represents God. If you were to go back in the Bible to Joshua chapter 3, as God's people are about to enter into the promised land, there's one problem. There is the Jordan River that is flooded. And so what God says to do is to take the Ark of the Covenant carried by the priest, bring the Ark into the water, and God in the midst of that stormy judgment water, God is going to hold back the water, and the people can walk through on dry land. And so, if God has used the Ark to hold back stormy judgment water before, it does... On a surface level reading, it does seem like a good plan, at least a decent idea, to bring this ark into battle. It's worked before. Why not try it again? So they trot out the ark. They have their sacred item at the center of the war. Surely this is going to guarantee victory. But what you see by the end of verse 11 is that this battle, this second battle, is even worse. During the first battle, Israel lost 
12,000 men. This time, this second battle, with the ark in the midst of it all, they lose 30,000 soldiers. Just absolutely crushed, demolished. Israel never even had a chance. And so the, the, the question is why? When, when, when on the, the surface, it, it, it looks like Israel might be doing the right thing. They, they, they brought the ark. They, they did their role. They played their part. They brought their God, their religion into the battle. Why does it go so bad this second time? And the answer for why it goes so poorly for Israel during the second battle actually gives us a glimpse into the true spiritual state of Israel and why, going back to the first three chapters, why a prophet like Samuel is needed. Why, why does it go so bad? Even though these guys, Israel is doing on the surface the right thing. Notice in verse 4 that there are two men that are a part of this plan. And the two men are Hophni and Phineas. We learned a few weeks ago when, when Pastor Demetrius preached about Hophni and Phineas that these two men are the sons of the high priest Eli. And these two men are known as being worthless sons. As the worshipers would make their way to make an offering up in the temple, these worshipers would lay their meat on the altar and Hophni and Phineas. They would come and they would get a big fork and they would stick it in the meat and they would take it home, eat the meat for themselves. These men got fat off of other people's worship. This would be something like a pastor stealing from the offering plate today. What is genuinely offered up to God as worship, pastors then take it and use it for themselves. That is what these men are doing. They're selfish. They are stealing from worship. What we also learn from Pastor Demeyer is that it gets even worse. It says that these two men were sleeping around with the women who were serving in the tent of meeting. So Hophni and Phineas, they are stealing from the offering plate and they are essentially sleeping with the church secretaries. This is not good. You know, there's a lot of talk today in 2023 about men that use their positions of power for their own selfish gain. And that is these two men to a T. They are selfish and they are godless. They do not care about God. They only care about using God to get what they want. They care about themselves. They're selfish. And what is especially, especially deplorable about Hophni and Phineas is that they are using their position as the sons of the high priest to get what they want. These two men, their, their, their whole religious persona is just a sham. It's a facade. These two men wearing their, 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 their fancy robes and likely offering up fancy prayers as they head off to the tent, the, the formal garments of the priesthood. They look like they fit the parts, but their insides are rotten. They're just using their religious performance for religious gain. 
Now, sin is always sin. Sin is never good. But it is, is especially sinful when you use what is intended for God to use it for your own sinful end. To use God's name as a means for your sin. Two worthless, despicable men. Here we are in chapter 4, and these two despicable sons of the high priest are making an appearance again. The nation is falling apart. The Philistines are coming. Everyone is afraid for their own lives. And so what do deplorable Hophni and Phinehas do? Now, I don't see anything in the text that says that these men have repented, that they have changed their mindset, that they have turned away from their sin, and that they have a heart for God. No, we know that these are godless men. They use religion to get whatever they want. So what do Hophni and Phinehas instruct the people to do? They're going to bring out the ark as a cheap magic trick to appease God to get what they want. See, that's all they're doing here. It's like like a, a magic eight ball. You make a wish, you're, your magic eight ball, you shake it up, and then the little triangle pops up, your wish has been granted. That's what the people are doing here with, with the ark. God, we just wish to be safe. Here's the ark, please, like, like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. Just make a wish, rub the, 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 the wolf foot that's tie-dyed purple, or whatever it is, doesn't even look like a rabbit's foot, but, but you rub the rabbit's foot, make a wish, and you hope it comes true. That's what they are doing with the ark. They're just going to parade it around, rub it, make a wish, and hope that God comes through. See, this is very different than the crossing of the Jordan River. The crossing of the Jordan River, there was a humility before God. But here, Hophni and Phinehas, who really represent the people at large, there is no God-centered contrition leaning into God, but rather they just want to use God to get what they want. And the lesson here is to make no mistake that God cannot be pawned off cheaply to give you what you want. You can't take God's items, worship of God, things that are sacred and set apart. You cannot parade those things around in your life like a cheap rabbit's foot simply to manipulate God into giving you a blessing. Think of Bilbo Baggins talking to Gandalf. Bilbo doubts the power of Gandalf. And so Gandalf, he he grows tall and with a very stern voice, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. That's all the people want of God. It's one of God of cheap tricks. And God is not simply a trick master. He is not a rabbit foot to be rubbed to win a battle. No, God is the end of all things. He is the first cause. He's the simple God. He is the God who has no parts, no passions. He is the God who has existed forever. Reveal the happy fellowship of the Trinity. He is the God who revealed himself to Moses by saying, my name is I am. I am who I am. That means there has ever been a time when God was not. There will never be a time when God is not. God just is. I am. That's what we're talking about here. I am 
cannot be tricked, cannot be manipulated. He is not to be used. So by the end of this scene, we see what happens when God is treated as a good luck charm. Israel is crushed in battle. The ark is taken away by the Philistines. And as predicted, Hophni and Phinehas are killed. Most people think of God as this just nice, loving, cosmic grandpa that, that floats in the clouds. He's always smiling. He never is stern. But what we learn here is that God is much more than just a cosmic grandpa float die. Clouds. Now, when people try and manipulate God, people die. There's grave consequences for treating God too lightly. Now, perhaps not to the extent of Hophni and Phinehas, but the bad example of these two deplorable men does force us this morning to ask a very important question of ourselves. Do we love God just because he is, and therefore we lay our lives down and worship of him, or do we treat God as a cosmic vending machine that can be manipulated to obtain a favorable result? Think of a a vending machine. This is what the people are doing with the ark, a vending machine. You walk up to the glass window, you take a look, you see some, some beverages, you see some snacks, you see what you want, Put a, a couple dollars into the machine, you type in a code, and this, this magic hand moves around, grabs what you want, and out it comes. It's, it's very transactional. You put in your money, the machine does the work, you get the reward. That's how Hophni and Phineas are treating God. They're playing a religious performance. Just spend some time in the temple, trot out the ark, and then God is obligated to give you the blessing you want. The question this morning is... Are you doing the same? Today we might say, if we were to act like Hophni and Phinehas, we might say, God, I go to church. I've done my part. I've said a few prayers. I'm a good person. Just type in the code on the vending machine. God, I've done it all. I've done the ritual. Now you owe me what I want. See, the heart of Hophni and Phinehas shows us the heart of Israel at large, which is the people have forgotten a love for God himself. They just want to do a few things. They want to type in a code so that God is obligated to give them what they want. This is works-based righteousness. God, I perform. I've done my part. Now you owe me. Dale Ralph Davis, he's a commentator, and he writes in his commentary... Whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins to chant, thou art useful, well, then you know that the ark has been captured. Instead of contrition and praise to God, the people just want a God who is useful. Listen, I'm going to read from three different sections of the Bible. What does God actually want from us? Here we see Hophni and Phinehas. They're just going through the motions. But what does God actually want from his people? What we see is that God does not want performance or ritualism. No, God just wants our humble hearts. It's from Micah 6.8. What does God require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
Or Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Or Mark 12, 30. The two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the, the problem with Hophni and Phinehas and the problem with Israel here is that they're not broken before God. They're not, they're, not, they're not contrite. They're not leaning into God. They're not begging God for his mercy and grace. There's no love for God. There's no love for people here. No, rather, they're, they're proud. Oh, we're God's people. We have the ark. We're all set. We've done our part. See, they're not leaning into God. They are leaning into their own works-based righteousness. But God is not a God that can be manipulated by works. He is not a machine to punch in codes. He is not looking for a performance or act. No, what God delights in is when his people repent and there's contrition and there's humility before him. Some of the key words that I just read, justice, kindness, humility, brokenness, contrite, love. None of those words connotate a high view of ourselves. None of those connotate a workspace righteousness, but rather they give us a small view of ourselves that forces us to lean into God's grace and love. That's what the people are missing here. They're not broken before God. There's no humility. There's no love for God. They just want a useful God. They care more about God's gifts than the giver himself. But here's the thing. The people here, they bring out this ark as an empty way of earning a blessing. But what Israel has forgotten is that God loves to bless his people. That's what the people forgot here. They're trying to buy off God to get a blessing, but they've forgotten that God already loves to bless He doesn't need to be manipulated. He does not need to be bought off. God doesn't bless based on an empty religious performance. No, God blesses because that's just who he is. He's already the giver of blessing. You see, when people live under a works-based righteousness in order to get a blessing, they aren't asking God for too much, but far too little. Two, real quick, two reasons why works-based righteousness that we see here is so harmful. Number one, if you live under works-based righteousness, you fail to understand the gracious nature of God. We don't need to twist God's arm. You don't need to, to act or to play or to trot out a religious icon to earn a blessing. No, God has already made a promise. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to keep you. And I'm going to make my face to shine upon you. If you live in Jesus, you're already blessed. You you don't need more from him. You don't need to manipulate more from God because you have Jesus interceding for you. He's already given us his son. How much more than will he graciously with him give us all things? If you were coming to God trying to twist his arm to get more blessings, then you have forgotten that you are already blessed in Christ. Number two, 
If you live under works-based righteousness, you fail to realize the greatest gift that God has already given. See, people that try and twist God's arm for another blessing, they fail to realize what is already offered in Christ. I heard uh, Tim Keller share once about a high schooler at his church. I, I, I think this is back when he was a pastor in, in Virginia. I might be wrong, but there's a young lady from the youth group came to, to Tim Keller and said, you know, Pastor Tim, I know that I am a Christian. I know that I am saved. I go to church. I believe in Jesus. I believe that I, I'm forgiven. I believe that I'm going to live forever with Jesus, that one day I'm going to rise from the grave. But Pastor Tim, do, does any of that really matter if none of the boys in high school like me? You see, she knew some things about God, but the, the full beauty, the full reality of all that she has in Christ had not fully gripped her heart yet. Does it matter if you are forgiven and promised eternal life and the full pleasure of God forever? Does that really matter if a boy doesn't like you? And the answer is, it absolutely matters. It, it, it changes everything. If the full reality of all that you have in Jesus Christ, the full blessing of God, if you fully apprehended that in your heart, my head, and then my heart, then yes, it would matter, and you would not ask God for little things. You would not live under workspace righteousness, but you would live in the freedom of all that God has done for you in Christ. You see, Hophni and Phinehas, they want far too little in life. Hophni and Phinehas and Israel, as they're trotting out the ark to win this battle, they're trying to manipulate God for a $5 hot and ready from the hood. When God is saying, I've already promised you a steak downtown. Stop asking for the little things. Come to the feast. I am going to bless you. Do not manipulate. Just come. Receive. That's who I am. They've forgotten that they were God's people. That they belonged to God. And the best thing that God is ever going to give that does not need to be manipulated, does not need to be earned, because Jesus has already earned it for you, is that you get to be with God forever. As John Piper has said, God is the gospel. He goes on to say the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven, it is a way to get people to God. Out of all the things that God gives, out of all the blessings that he could ever give you in life, the best thing that he has given is that you get to be with him. And that is not a gift that you manipulate or earn, but is freely given because of Jesus Christ. And so for the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, the emphasis has been God is beginning to raise up this new prophet. At the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3, it's just God's word, very quietly. Samuel doesn't even know who's speaking. But by the end of chapter 3, we see that God is raising up this new prophet that is going to speak, that's going to remind people of all that they have in God. And here on chapter 4, we see why that word is one of desperately needed. Because the people like God, they just want to conjure of cheap tricks. They want to manipulate God into lesser gifts. And at the end of this scene in chapter 11, what we see is if the people essentially say, God, I, I don't really want you. I just like what you give. God essentially says, okay, I'll give you what you want. 
Now, we know ultimately God's not going to leave His people. He, he comes back. We know Samuel's coming, and there's going to be David, and there's going to be the great, great grandson of David who is King Jesus that's going to bring His people over. But as a form of discipline, here in verse 11, God says, you don't want me, you just want the gifts, fine. I'll give you what you want. I'm going to leave. So as you see, Israel loses 3,000 men. The ark is captured and carried off by the Philistines. So this great religious artifact full of God's presence, his power, his law, all of that is now going to leave his people. Not forever, but as a form of discipline, as a way of reminding his people Long for me. Long for me as the giver. Don't long just for the gifts. And so this very sad story hopefully forces us to ask a very important question of our lives. This morning, how do you view God? How do you view God? Is this whole Christianity thing just useful? Is is, is there something else that you are after, something you want to use God for? Remember when I was applying to colleges when I was in high school, everyone told me, make sure on your college application you put down that you did summer mission trips, serve the poor so that you can get into a better college. You see, you're using something else to get what you really want. That means your heart's really not in the mission trip. Are you using God in a similar way? Are you using Him to get something else? Or are you going to say, God, no, what I want more than anything else is not just the gifts, but I want you. In Psalm 16, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. In Psalm 42, my soul longs and pants for you, O God. The short catechism reminds us, the chief end of man, the purpose of our lives, men and women, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So here we have the Ark of the Covenant, just a cheap way of trying to manipulate God to get a gift. This morning, I would encourage you, don't settle for cheap gifts. Long for God himself. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you that in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Father, we do thank you that, that you are a giver, that you give lots of good things. Throughout the Bible, we do see military victories and a new identity that you've given us and family and friends and monetary blessings and health. And so you are certainly a giver. But Father, in all those things, help us to long for you primarily, chiefly, above all things. May we never settle for secondary things and we could have what is best. And Father, keep us from the sin that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the sin of using you for something else. May that never be true of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.